0: Welcome back to another episode of Out the Gate. I'm Ben Shaw, your host for this show about sailing and adventure on and around San Francisco Bay. Sponsorship for the podcast comes from Shearwater Sailing, a charter business run by Kevin Waspara out of Monterey Bay. Kevin offers offshore excursions aboard a fully equipped FAR 53 named Atalanta. As I've mentioned before, I've been lucky enough to go out sailing with Kevin aboard Atlanta, and she's a beautiful, comfortable, and safe vessel. And some exciting news Shearwater is going to be in the bay in late March and early April to attend the Sail GP regatta and to do some charters. Sail GP is coming to San Francisco Bay on March 26th and 27th. Atlanta is booked already on the 27th, but she's available for charter on the 26th still. So, that day could include sailing on San Francisco Bay, watching the foiling catamarans, these amazing sailboats you can watch from the special on the water viewing area, and possibly visiting the Race Village. Kevin is also making individual berths available for the sale from Monterey to San Francisco and from San Francisco back to Monterey. And this would be a great opportunity for anyone wishing to gain some offshore experience. Kevin and his crew can tailor the experience doing more or less teaching depending on your interests in areas such as navigation, sail handling, helming, cooking underway, and more. And lastly, they'll be doing some day charters on San Francisco Bay during that time in March. And April, So people should feel free to give Kevin a call. You can visit ShearWaterSailing.net to get more info about the boat and Kevin and the business or call him at 650-743-1389 to reach him directly. You could also email him at info at Discuss the possibility of sailing with them when they're up here in the bay or sailing with them up here to the bay, or back to Monterey. All could be great experiences. This week, we're actually not talking about adventure on or around the bay, as the tagline for the podcast indicates, but we're going beneath the waves to learn more about whales, specifically what happens when human activity, be it boating or fishing, affects whales through ship strikes or Net entanglements. Back in June, yeah, yeah, it's been a while since I recorded this interview, but it's it's been worth waiting for. Back in June, I was lucky enough to catch up with Kathy George and Becca Lane, both of whom work at the Marine Mammal Center, right up in the Marin Headlands. It's an amazing place. It's closed right now to visitors, but visit the website, marinemammalcenter.org and you can find out when they reopen. I highly recommend you go visit once they have opened back up. Kathy George is Director of Field Operations and Response at the Marine Mammal Center. She works a great deal on whale entanglement response and prevention. She's participated in six whale disentanglements. Can you imagine that, getting a whale actually disentangled from a net? And over 50 sea lion disentanglements. Becca Lane is a graduate student researcher at the Marine Mammal Center and is studying the risk of ship strikes on humpback whales in the bay. And it's not just container ships and tankers that can do real damage to whales, but, as Becca explains, sailboats and other recreational vehicles can can really hurt and kill whales. They both have plenty to share about the mysterious giants we all hope to see when we're out there on the water in these parts. So let's get to it and hear directly from them.
1: My name is Becca Lane. I'm a graduate student at San Francisco State Estuarine Ocean Science Center and Dr. Ellen Hines' lab. I'm studying the risk of ship strike to humpback whales in San Francisco Bay. And as part of my project, I'm working with the Marine Mammal Center in the Cetacean Field Research Division as a graduate student researcher.
2: Hi, I'm Kathy George. I'm the Director of Field Operations and Response at the Marine Mammal Center. My team leads rescue and response along 600 miles of California coastline from San Luis Obispo County up through Mendocino County. We also participate in large whale entanglement response and prevention efforts. And we oversee the cetacean field research work that we do at the center.
0: Wow, that's very cool. So you, you're both involved with the Marine Mammal Center in Marin. Do you work together much? Um, you, you mentioned whale entanglements. I know, Kathy, do you respond ever to whale strikes?
2: Um, I have helped with whale strikes and with necropsies, which are animal autopsies in the past. And I, lately I've been a boat transport driver to get the scientists out to the necropsy sites if they are not accessible via land.
0: One of the reasons I really am interested to talk to you both is because whale strikes just seem to be in the public eye like they haven't been before. There have been so many over the past few months. Is that a result of there being more? Or is it just something that people are paying attention to more now?
2: I'll go ahead and jump in on this one. And then Becca, I want to hear about your research that you're doing and your project. But um, we have had a lot of reports of dead whales since April. The Marine Mammal Center has responded to 14 different whales since April 1st. Um, there have been a couple reports that have come in additionally in the last week or so that we're waiting for the whales to get ashore. The whales are also under what's called an unusual mortality event. And this was declared back in 2019 when we've seen large numbers of whales passing throughout their entire migratory route. So the gray whales will feed up in the nutrient rich -rich waters in the Arctic, and then swim down to Baja for breeding. In recent years um, with climate change, the production of food has not been as good in their feeding areas. So the whales have been not as healthy as they have been in previous years. And during the migration, which is very taxing on them with going all the way down to Baja, breeding, um, giving birth, nursing, and then coming back up without feeding. Um, We have seen some of the whales die from malnutrition related causes, as well as kind of the malnutrition causing them to be in a compromised condition and vessel strike. So those are the two leading causes that we're seeing. But fortunately in 21 in this year, so far, there have been fewer numbers of of whale deaths throughout the entire migratory route compared to the numbers we were seeing back in 2019 and 2020. So um, that's a good sign for the species overall, but it is a concern here for our area because we have seen so many locally.
0: And Becca, this is something that that you're studying in particular is whale strikes. How did you get interested in that and what aspects of whale strikes are you actually looking into?
1: Absolutely. Um, well, as long as I've been um, interested in, in humpback whales, which has been forever, um, <laughs> I've been particularly interested in, in human-caused threats to them. And so uh, ship strike and entanglement was always something that I wanted to study when I went off to grad school. And a few years back, I went to an American Cetacean Society meeting about, I think, four or five years ago in Monterey Bay. And I met some of these folks that I work with now at the Marine Mammal Center who were telling me, you know, this is crazy. We have humpback whales inside San Francisco Bay. And, of course, this light went on that San Francisco Bay is an extremely urban area. It's a huge area of commerce, you know. So uh, this is kind of a unique opportunity or a unique situation where uh, we have tons of ships and then also whales overlapping in space and time. So I'm particularly interested And humpback whales in San Francisco Bay and and how they overlap and the the risk of ship strike to them.
0: So are humpback whales the species that's primarily being impacted by ship strikes, impacted is probably the wrong word to use there, but um, being hurt by ship strikes in the Bay Area? And is that also true worldwide or is it different species in different regions?
1: Mm, that's interesting. Yeah, it, it is different species in different regions, kind of depending on that level of overlap. But here in the Bay, uh, like Kathy was saying, we had gray whales that came in in 2019 and spend some time in the Bay uh, in the spring. And we have humpback whales since 2016 uh, that spend a large portion of the year uh, kind of inshore closer to to those human caused risks like ships. So, in the bay area, those two species are definitely our main focus in terms of closer to shore and in the bay, uh, way outside the bay in the sanctuary of course, blue whales and fin whales are really high risk species for ship strike as well. If you think back historically, it's it's very unusual that we have whales in the bay right now. It used to be such an anomaly like think Humphrey the whale back in uh, 1985 and 1995 my,
0: my wife talks about yeah. that. She remembers that as a kid, yeah.
1: <laughs> exactly, exactly. And that was just, I mean, it was show-stopping, right? Um, but now, yeah, we have humpback whales in the bay from April to November, even east of the Golden Gate Bridge. And that's pretty unique and pretty incredible.
0: Kathy, I'm curious, this is kind of a two-part question. I'm curious about the response once there's a whale strike. Obviously, if a whale dies from a whale strike, the response is, is a necropsy and to try and understand it better. Uh, but are there, are there whale strikes that are not fatal to the whales? And if they are, is there any kind of response? Do we even know about it?
2: That is a great question. And most of the time we do no, not know about vessel strikes when a whale is hit, if it is killed, it's likely to sink and we would never see it. Or if it does survive it would rely on someone seeing it. So one of the things that's really exciting about the Marine Mammal Center and our cetacean field research team that Becca works with is that we have scientists that are out on the water and documenting the whales that we see. So we can monitor an individual whale. And when we've seen it, if we see any scarring on it and what that scarring is from, or in the unfortunate case, if the whale is dead and found on a beach and we need to perform a necropsy on it, um, perhaps we could gain some additional information and know who that whale is and know its behaviors of what it had been doing prior to its mm. death.
0: But That's yeah. That's really interesting. Mm-hmm. It, it just, so uh, <laughs> this is a tough question, but do we have, are there any estimates of how many whales might be getting hit? I mean, is it, or is it just a case that we don't know what we don't know?
1: Well, I know on the on the West Coast and in 2018, and it and it varies by year, but there are about 80 whales, you know, of all species that were hit and killed by ships. But again, like uh, like Kathy said, that's a real that's a that's a significant underestimate when we have about yeah. a five something like a five to 17 percent uh, recovery rate for carcasses for humpback whales. So that's a that's a big area that we don't know. We don't know just how many whales are getting hit. And, and on top of that, how many whales are getting sublethal injuries, right, that right. are um, uh, making it harder for them to reproduce or to um, feed? You know, we just don't know.
0: Uh, how are the humpback whale populations in general here on the West Coast?
1: In the world, humpbacks are considered um, least concerned. So I'm not doing bad at all. But here on the West Coast, we have actually two uh, distinct population segments that are listed as threatened and endangered under the endangered or sorry under the IUCN red list so um, we have two like I said two distinct population segments one feeds off the coast of Mexico and one feeds off the coast of Central America that Mexican stock is listed as threatened they have like something like 2,800 individuals whereas uh, the group in uh, Central America has something like 780 so actually what people don't realize is that these are not the same humpback whales in general that go down and feed in Hawaii and are doing really well. Um, These are, you know, two two population segments that are of conservation concern.
0: And Kathy, where do ship strikes fall in terms of all of the concerns facing these threatened whales? Uh, And speaking more generally, not just these populations, but all general all whales generally
2: yeah ship strike is a top concern
0: yeah yeah what are some of the others
2: uh entanglement and malnutrition
0: malnutrition from a lack of of fish what does the malnutrition come from
2: whatever the prey is of the particular whales so in the case of humpback whales it could be fish or krill in the case of gray whales, it would be more of the amphipods and phytoplankton that they're eating in the sediment. Hmm. interesting.
0: Talk up a little bit more about entanglement. Uh, I'm curious about your role and the Marine Mammal Center's role in terms of entanglement. I'm assuming it's entanglement with old fishing nets that have been discarded. Is that primarily the culprit? The culprit is primarily active
2: fishing gear Okay. But um, the Marine Mammal Center is working very closely with the fishermen. I'm a member of the California Dungeness Crab Fishing Gear Working Group, and we work with the commercial fishermen and recreational fishermen, the California Department of Fish and Wildlife, and NOAA and the U.S. Coast Guard and other nonprofits to find ways that we could reduce the risk of entanglement in the Dungeness Crab fishery. So I'm um, partnering with stakeholders to implement mitigation measures and reducing that risk of entanglement so we've had great success in the last few years with decreasing the number of entanglements that have been reported here in california
0: and what kind of measures like, so i think of yeah. uh, uh i think of crab crabbing as, as a pot with one long line that then goes up to a a buoy, I don't know if I'm I'm right there because I'm, I'm certainly no expert in terms of crabbing, but what kind of, is that right? And then are there, what kind of changes can be done to help eliminate the entanglement? Yeah, so
2: um, you described crabbing very simply. There's a pot that sits on the bottom with a vertical line that goes up to one or more buoys. Um, three plus years ago, we worked with the fishermen to develop a best practices guide and how much line they should be using based on the depth they're fishing at and share that with all of the fishermen to try and reduce excess line in the water. And that was helpful. And we worked with the state to, um, we're testing different types of gear, different types of line, um, we're testing to understand, can we use electronic monitoring on boats to know where they are as a way to help reduce that risk of entanglement. And recently we developed a program called the RAMP, which is the Risk Assessment and Mitigation Program, where we looked at four different factors that could influence the risk of entanglement. Um, We looked at the number of entanglements that were being reported. We looked at the fishing dynamics, is the season opening on time? Um, The opening is typically November 15th, which is when the whales should be heading out of our area towards their breeding grounds and reducing that overlap between the fishery and the whales. Um, We looked at marine life concentrations, so understanding where the whales are um, and being able to share that information with the fishermen and looking at ocean conditions. What does it look like for their prey? Where are the whales likely to go? And we share, we review that information regularly with the fishermen and use that to kind of inform fishing efforts. And this past year, the department came out with regulations that included looking at where the whales are, as well as the number of entanglements, and have put in place measures to say when management action is needed to reduce that risk, such as close a particular area, fish with inside a certain depth, or other management action. And the department makes a recommendation, works with the working group. They collect all of this data around the marine life concentrations, around socioeconomic information, around the fishery, around entanglements. And the working group helps make a recommendation to the department and ultimately the director of fish and wildlife to inform his decision that he makes on the fishery. So this was the first year that these regulations have come into play and we had no entanglements during the fishery this year. There has been one reported since that time frame, but the Dungeness Crab Fishery has worked really hard to reduce that risk of entanglement. So proud to work with the fishermen.
0: That's great to hear. That's great to hear. And Becca, on the uh, ship strike uh, side of things, mitigating that, what kind of changes can be made? I know that there's a move to to try and slow ships when they come into areas that are trafficked by, by whales.
1: For sure, the... Um speed restrictions and enforcement is, is the primary thing that is going to help with these whales. At, at this rate, you know, they've changed the routes off um, the sanctuary, but the bay is um, so small, such a tight area. I think really the best thing uh, that allows the uh, whales to get out of the way or um, whatever needs to happen is, is to slow the speed of the vessels. And as far as, you know, we also have a lot of recreational boaters in the bay or ferries, and I think the biggest thing for them is to just be aware that they're, you know, we're sharing the bay now with several species of cetaceans. So, uh, and those are, of course, whales, dolphins, porpoises. So it is really important to be on the lookout, uh, slow down, give them space when you see them, and of course, report your sightings to the Marine Mammal Center.
0: So specifically for recreational boaters, um, I think that's probably primarily the audience here what advice would you give I people I mean at least most of the people who I know who are out on the bay love when they get an opportunity to see whales and are a little more concerned about the whale doing damage to their (laughs) own boats than doing damage to the whales but um, is there a danger there from recreational boats and what advice do you give
1: of course, um, there is a danger. Uh, there was a study that came out recently that said any boat of any size can actually cause lethal energy or injury to a whale, uh, depending hmm. on the speed that the boat is going. Um, so it is important if you're a recreational boater on the whale, like I said, to just to slow down, uh, <laughs> to keep a lookout, to be on the lookout for things. You know, this is not something you've had to do uh, historically, but it, it is now. Uh, between April and November for you to keep an eye out uh, for whales in the bay as you're, as you're going about. Um, it's, you know, the best thing you can do is if you see a whale, you can stop uh, and observe it for a while. Sometimes uh, they'll come a bit closer. Uh, it's illegal for you to approach a whale um, intentionally within a hundred yards. So you have to keep that in mind as well. You know, it can be a really, really fun opportunity to um, see whales in the bay and uh, really get some cool observations. And of course, yeah. report your sightings to the Marine Mammal Center so that we can go out uh, and get photo identification and evaluate things like body condition.
0: What's the easiest way to do that?
1: Uh, to go to the Marine Mammal Center uh, website, marine mammals, themarinemammalcenter.org and go to the uh, report a sightings page.
0: And Kathy or Becca, either one of you, um, I'd love to understand a little more why you think we're seeing more whales in the Bay.
2: I think we have a healthier bay and it's really exciting. Whales are, humpback whales specifically, are going to go where the food is and they're going to follow where the fish are. And we're seeing anchovies in the bay. So that's why the whales are coming in. So we have a healthier bay. One of the gray whales that was observed by our team earlier this year was observed feeding in the bay, which hasn't been seen before. So again, that lends me to believe that we have a healthier Bay than we've had in years past.
0: That's great to hear. Becca, you mentioned earlier that you've been interested in whales since you were a kid. What I would love to hear a little bit more about how that interest started and then grew into now a career.
1: Sure. Absolutely. I really love this question. I, um, Actually, grew up in Wichita, Kansas,
0: <laughs> which is not a far away whales there. <laughs>
1: <laughs> quite a ways from the ocean, quite a ways from the whales. And um, one of my biggest memories from childhood is uh, when my mom was working full time. Me and my siblings would walk to the downtown library and um, just I would just check out every book that there was about whales, dolphins, you know, sea creatures of any kind. And it was just so like magical and mythical to me because it was so far outside of my range of, you know what I saw on a daily basis that I just became kind of obsessed. <laughs> you know, it was a, it was like kind of a little cute passion when I was a little kid. And as I got older and um, had to kind of make some decisions about my uh, career path, I knew it wasn't necessarily super practical especially for me being so far. Uh, from the ocean, but, uh, and not being able to go to a, you know, a coastal uh, school right outside of high school. But I just decided this is what interests me the most and what I'm most passionate about. And so I'm just going to go do it. I went off to uh, Emporia State University, which is a small school in Kansas, really great field biology school, got a really nice, well-rounded biology education. But during that time, I worked really hard to find internships for research around the country eventually kind of found my way into a marine mammal field by going to things like conferences like that acs conference i mentioned before the american cetacean society and the biggest thing is making connections so i made some really really helpful useful connections during that time with people i work with now at the marine mammal center Um, and so It's been, it's been pretty amazing. Sometimes I have to pinch myself (laughs) because here I am doing, you know, exactly what my biggest dream was as a kid. So it's pretty
0: awesome. That's very cool. And Kathy, how about you? How did you get interested and then involved?
2: I came from the Midwest. So I, very similar to Becca, did not have the ocean and whale environment to grow up in, but always was attracted to it. I moved out here after college and I was actually working in high tech and lost my job during the dot-com bust and was just contracting out a position and not really satisfied with the work that I was doing. And I learned about this place called the Marine Mammal Center up in Sausalito, California, which is the world's largest marine mammal hospital. And I became a volunteer at the center don't want to age myself, but almost 20 years ago. And like Becca said, it's a lot about connections and hard work. And I started volunteering at the Marine Mammal Center, met people, started to get involved and met more people, started to get more involved and ultimately ended up spending all of my vacation time up in Alaska, working on humpback whales and a team from National Geographic was out there and putting critter cams on the humpback whales. And lo and behold, shortly after that um, outing, I found myself as an employee at National Geographic Society and worked for them. So that was kind of my first introduction into the nonprofit world and wanted to be back in California and doing all of the things that I love doing. I was heavily involved in the whale entanglement response network and the marine mammal stranding network and so i moved back here i had started a nonprofit with three other colleagues focusing on whale entanglement response and prevention and then a couple of years ago joined forces with the marine mammal center to do our collective work together and have even greater impact so mine was a really big circle to get here where i am today but I cannot be more excited about the work that I do. I am working with people like Becca who inspire me. I have people that are my colleagues that are the folks that you read about in books. And I'm, we get to work with world renowned, the best researchers in the world, not only on our team, but in partner organizations. So I really love the aspect of kind of who you get to meet and what you're working on and really collaborating together. So. I'm thrilled to be in my position to not only help understand where the whales are and what they're doing, but how can that information be used to help them and their conservation?
0: That's that's awesome. It's a small world, Kathy, because I used to work right down the hall at National Geographic from the Critter Cam guys, and I would always walk over there to see what they were up to. They were always coming back from amazing places to see their latest footage, to see their the cameras that they were working on to try and strap a giant squid or the humpback whales. <laughs>
2: <laughs> that's too funny. Small world up on the sixth yeah. floor, down in the basement.
0: <laughs> that's right. That's right. We probably crossed paths. That's yeah. too funny. Um, well, that's wonderful. I, I mean, I, just both of you, um, hearing a little bit about how you got into it, I think is, is inspiring. Um, Tell us a little bit about you. Say you know I, you talk about monitoring the, the whales, and I imagine you out there in the boats. How much of your time is spent on the water, looking for or following whales, and and how much of it is uh, doing doing research in the lab or in an office? Tell us a little bit about what a day looks like for each one of you.
2: I'll go ahead and go first. Um, I unfortunately spend more of my day behind a computer in a desk than I would like to, but I do have the fortunate capability to get out on the water probably once a month, I would say. Um, We have a team out on the water today. Our cetacean field research team is actually out on the water today doing some surveys, looking for whales in the bay, and I hope to join them next time. I'm also working with Cascadia Research Collective and SR3, and we are doing surveys of the Dungeness crab fishing grounds at two different depths to look for whales. So with those surveys, there are more dedicated efforts and we're out in the water for multiple days at a time. And overall, it's probably once a month that I'm getting out on the water and I'm not spending too much time in the lab right now. How about you, Becca?
1: Um, well, it, it does kind of just vary depending on weather conditions and all that fun stuff. Um, of course, the Bay is kind of notorious for that, um, the Bay Area. Um, but uh, right now, it's finally picking back up after uh, the pandemic. Um, so I'm actually going out uh, to the Farallons tomorrow to help with some data collection out there. and. Um, I usually go out on the cetacean field research surveys, which we aim to do, you know, once or twice a week. Um, So I'm, you know, in in an ideal world, that's, you know, the majority of what I'd be doing. But of course, there's a lot of data analysis. And um, so I do spend several days a week uh, at my desk on the computer. But any day I get out on the water, I'm I'm stoked more than
0: happy. What else would you like people to know about, about the whale research or about whales?
1: Maybe I could describe my research project? Please. Okay. As part of my uh, master's thesis at San Francisco State and in collaboration with the Marine Mammal Center, uh, like I said earlier, I'm studying specifically the risk of ship strike to humpback whales in the Bay by creating a habitat risk assessment model using geographic information systems online. So um, we have about 1500 sightings from the Marine Mammal Center since 2016 of humpback whales. Uh, from that cetacean field research division Uh, and then we have a bunch of vessel data and our vessel data comes from two sources. So the first is from something called automatic identification systems or AAS which I'm sure a lot of um, our listeners who spend time on the bay are actually familiar with. Um, For those who aren't, it's a shipboard broadcast system and it's required by the Coast Guard on any vessel that's over 65 feet in length, any vessel that's rated for over 150 passengers, commercial tow vessels, in any kind of dredging or commercial fishing vessel. So AIS is actually open source data. It's available online at marinecadaster.gov. But in addition, like we've discussed, there are also a ton of recreational vessels in the Bay. Some of them do carry AIS, but they're not required to. So uh, we were able to fill that gap by collaborating with the Anthropocene Institute, Brendan Tuffer and Samantha Cope. And we've deployed a Marine Monitor or an M2 And this sits on shore and it uses AIS, but it also uses off the shelf marine radar, as well as a high definition camera. And it can track any vessel that comes in or out of the bay within a line of sight. And so we went through a really extensive permitting process to get this M2 stationed at the entrance of the bay. Um, It's right near the Point Bonita Lighthouse. So if you've been uh, to the lighthouse anytime uh, since January, if you're walking down, Uh, To the right, there's a big trailer with solar panels on it, and that's our M2. It's uh, working overtime to monitor those vessels that come in and out of the bay. So I'll be using that data and the vessel data to analyze the overlap between whales and vessels and also create that risk assessment model. And this will kind of show something that looks like kind of like uh, hot spots of areas that are of highest concern in the bay and also in the exclusion zone that's right outside the sanctuary. And this is gonna be used to inform management and inform stakeholders about next steps we should do to protect whales
0: in the Bay. Fascinating, fascinating. And then hopefully by identifying those hotspots can make effective regulation that can help reduce the risk.
1: That's the goal.
0: Kathy, anything else that you'd like to mention?
1: Yeah, no, I think One of the
2: things that's really exciting about the center's work right now is really our ability to understand the individual whales while they're alive to ultimately if they do die. So um, whenever anybody is out in the water, like Becca said, if you do see a whale, that's really cool. Get a photo of it from far away and report it to the Marine Mammal Center. The Marine Mammal Center is out there doing surveys as well. And we're sharing whale sightings with the U.S. Coast Guard to have them send out an alert to boaters on the water to be aware that there's whales in the area to help reduce that potential for any collision. And if anybody does see a injured or sick marine mammal, in addition to a whale, a sea lion or a seal, you can call 415-289-SEAL, and that's the Marine Mammal Center's rescue hotline.
0: And Very we can cool. send out a
2: team to respond.
0: And for anybody in the Bay Area who hasn't been to the Marine Mammal Center, uh, I, you there are tours, right? I, I've actually been and volunteered once doing the glamorous work of, of cutting up fish and squid, I think, for for the uh, mammals there in the kitchen. But it's it's really a, a fascinating place. And, um, and there's a little, little shop. And, and I think there are... Am am I right that there are tours, Kathy?
2: There are. Uh, things have changed with the pandemic. We're currently sure. We're currently closed to the public. So pay attention to our website for the opening date. And we. And you're
0: right, right there near Rodeo Beach, up in the Headlands, correct?
2: Exactly. It's a beautiful spot. Come for a hike. Go hang out on the beach. Come check out the hospital.
0: It's a great spot. A little noisy at times with all the barking going on, but uh, <laughs> it's worth it. Rebecca and Kathy, this has been wonderful, very educational. I really appreciate it. You guys are both doing incredible work and such an exciting time to be on the Bay in the Bay Area with, with whales and other marine mammals uh, coming back in, in force in the Bay. So thank you.
2: Thank you, Ben.
1: Thank you, Ben. I do want to say, too, if anybody's interested in kind of keeping, um, keeping tabs on my research project and seeing how things are going in the Bay, I do have a science communication Instagram, and it's at oh. Whales of Oz. Um, so feel free to follow me there and, and kind of learn more about what I'm doing as well.
0: Whales of Oz?
1: Yeah, it's supposed to be kind of a cute little nod to the Wizard of Oz, but I don't
0: know. No, I love it. I love it. I just wanted to make sure that people got it. So whales of OZ. Good. Yeah, follow that. Uh, And I will post on on the Out the Gate Instagram uh, 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 a nod to that so people can find it. And um, I'm sure the Marine Mammal Center uh, has some social media going on too. So we'll We'll link to that as well in the show notes. So, um, great and follow the whales.
1: Yes, thank you so much, Ben.
0: That wraps up this episode. I hope you enjoyed that interview and learned a little something too. And you can find out more about whales, dolphins, seals, sea lions, and more marine mammals, and even get involved helping all those creatures at the Marine Mammal Center. Org. Check it out. If you want to reach me with thoughts or comments, you can find me on Instagram at OutTheGateSailing or email me at OutTheGateSailing at gmail.com. I'm Ben Shaw, host and producer of the show. And until next time, smooth sailing.